there. I'm Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a physician or healthcare provider, this podcast is for you. This is where we learn about trauma-informed medicine and ways to build resilience in healthcare organizations. We do this through stories, through your stories and the stories of other professionals and patients. We listen to each other to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a trauma-informed practice or provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can leave with and use with your patients right away. If you're a nurse, you can go to rnegade.pro and get credit for listening to our story today. Um, you're listening, so you might as well get some continuing education. Uh, today, I am thrilled to introduce my guest, um, Dr. Rola Halam. Rola was born a doctor. She just didn't know that her home country of Syria would shatter into a million pieces, killing over 30 members of her family and that she would wield her voice, stethoscope, and humanity as weapons greater than bullets and bombs. Dr. Rolla is an award-winning physician, humanitarian, campaigner, speaker, entrepreneur, and coach. She is the first Syrian TED Fellow and the founder of Can Do, a humanitarian organization supporting frontline health and aid workers to save children's lives in their war-devastated communities. She has helped build seven hospitals in Syria, including the first ever crowd-funded hospital, altogether serving over 4 million people. As a global advocate for health and human rights in conflict, she has, has shared the stages with presidents, celebrities, and grassroots activists. She is a TED and Google speaker, and her work has been featured in most media, from the New York Times to The Daily Show, including two BBC documentaries. Her online talks have been seen over 11 million times, inspiring thousands to become change makers. Rola believes the world needs more visionaries, idealists, rebels, and troublemakers to support people facing illness, injustice, and indifference, and not just survive, but thrive. So Rola, thank you so much for being here today. Mm, thank you for having me. I'm delighted. I'm excited too. I'm 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 struck and touched by your story, even the introduction that our listeners are are hearing. That's your formal introduction. Is there anything mm. else you want to tell the listeners about who you are or what you do right now? Mm. Well, the first thing that comes up is that um, I'm a mom of a three-year-old Naya, and she has undoubtedly catalyzed so much healing and learning over the last three years so um for that I'm so 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 grateful um yeah that's an important bit that's missing from that mm -hmm. yeah our whole selves right we're we're not just providers but also moms mm -hmm. yes yeah. absolutely so on this podcast we talk about what trauma looks like in medicine and how it presents and you have faced a lot of adversity. Talk mm. about um, how you turned your adversity from uh, being in a war-torn country, losing many family members, and turning that into advocacy and becoming a speaker and a coach. Mm. The truth is that I didn't really um, think or plan that out. It just happened as a result of you know, small daily action. Um, I think 
I, like many probably of your listeners, you know, um, respond to problems by trouble solving, by problem solving. And so, you know, when the peaceful protests in my country were met with bullets and bombs and, and the violence began, I, I did the only thing I knew I could and I joined the humanitarian effort. And, and, and in honesty, I, I thought it was gonna last a few days or a few weeks. Mm-hmm. I had no idea it was gonna still be going on now, 12 years later. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, alongside my full-time medical job in anesthesia in the UK, I became a volunteer. I was working weekends and evenings and working with um, the Syrians to build hospitals and clinics. I was going on medical missions to the north of the country in order to provide both clinical care, but also distribute um, food items, shelter items, et cetera. And and really, I guess I dealt with all of that, you know, adversity, as you put it, and all of that suffering through action. Mm -hmm. Wow. That was my way of handling it. That was my way of dealing with it, which you know, for the most part was great because it meant that I was able to achieve some amazing things. What I didn't realize was that that went to such an extent that it was then my way of numbing, hiding, denying Mm -hmm. my own pain, my own suffering. um, and, 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 you know, that eventually took its toll and that's when I crashed and burned. So um, I'm really interested in this story and other physicians hearing this, because what I'm hearing is you were a practicing anesthesiologist Mm -hmm. in the UK, and then suddenly war broke out in your country. Mm -hmm. And you, did you, you, it sounds like you felt like there's a calling. I need to go do something. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Still going back and forth and practicing medicine and yeah, so I was based in the UK. That's where that's where home had become for very many years before the before the revolution and the war, mm-hmm. and um, and so, um, but I had a lot of family, including immediate family, siblings, and my father who were living in in Syria, and um, and so it felt very normal, very natural. It it wasn't even a decision as such, really, to to do what you can, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I guess I um, didn't realize the depths to which it was going to descend to. Mm-hmm. I mean, even, you know, until January, I would have said to you, God, things are like the worst they've ever been. I'm not sure they could get any worse. And then, of course, last month we were hit by the deadly earthquake that struck mm-hmm. Turkey in Syria. And, you know, we reached a new depth of low that we didn't didn't think possible. And so, you know, things can always get worse. <laughs> it's been such a, a painful, painful lesson. Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I, I really appreciate that what you're sharing is that you went into action right away, right? And I think that's what a lot of physicians do. It's what a lot of healthcare providers do, right? Like go towards the pain, go towards the suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a cost to that. 
Well, I think that um, many of us are, the more that you, the more suffering that you witness, the more illness, injustice, indifference that you witness, the more that you are driven to up your impact and to make an even bigger difference, right? And so you yourself pile the responsibility on yourself, society piles it on you as well. You know, we, 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 we put our superhero cape on and we launch ourselves as saviors into the world. And um, meanwhile, we ignore ourselves. We ignore our needs. Um, if there were any boundaries, you smash those completely and, and you, you, you completely neglect yourself. You, in fact, may abuse yourself without even you knowing. Um, you prioritize everyone and everything else but yourself. Um, and when you are a very mission and purpose driven person, and when you love what you do, you can go quite a long while doing that, yeah. right? Um, and especially when you see everyone else around you, you know, if you're in a culture, in an industry, in a sector where sacrifice is the norm, where no boundaries is the norm, when 24 seven culture is the norm, Mm -hmm. when when most of your friends and colleagues also think self-care is selfish and a luxury that they can't afford mm -hmm. then you know we all we all like penguins kind of muddle along together keeping going mm -hmm. thinking we're actually doing the best thing for ourselves and for others but actually what we are really doing is, is launching ourselves into battle bruised battered bleeding and not our best selves. And for some of us, we can see the warning signs and heed those warn be warning bells along the way, which is what I hope for most of your listeners here is why I'm talking about this. But for some of us, like with me, you know, we wait until we literally have that enormous crash and burn until you realize, oh my goodness, something's gone wrong and I really am in need of, um, something god knows what but i don't know i didn't know at the time but i knew that something had gone wrong and that i needed to do something drastically different i i want to hear about that but i also want to answer kind of the the implicit question you just said which is i you know we hope that the listeners that are out there hearing this are more preventative that they don't crash um i would say unfortunately your story is more common than not and mm. Uh, for many physicians that I speak with, and not just physicians, but, you know, nurses and administrators and techs, um, they continue to just power through and power on. And it is very much part of that culture yes. um, in medicine. And it's it's rewarded, right? It's it's lauded as you're a hero and you're, you're better and you sacrifice. Mm. Um, and I think there's this silent suffering that happens. Yes. One of my hopes in, in people hearing these stories is that they'll hear your story and stories of other people that have been on this podcast and say, oh, I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. I'm not the only one that doesn't want this for our culture of doctors mm. who are also humans. Mm. Mm. What? What were your signs that you just couldn't ignore anymore? Maybe there were some early signs that you wish you had listened to. And then what were the signs that were like pounding on the door you couldn't help but listen to? Mm -hmm. 
So the, the, the earlier warning bells, I only really know in hindsight, to be honest. Um, you know, in hindsight, it's like, oh, yeah, that's so obvious. But at the time, because it was just such a chronic slip into it that you know you just keep normalizing abnormal normalizing abnormal and you have no idea that you are so stuck in survival mode that you're literally just treading water trying not to drown you just it becomes your norm doesn't it and um so you know i i, I think that that slippery slope is the thing to notice right when you feel like you have to work increasingly hard to even feel deserving of anything, including a weekend off, mm -hmm. when you feel like you are increasingly having to push yourself mm -hmm. to feel any semblance of satisfaction or self-worth. Um, so I think that, you know, I think of it as these like kind of, you know, you're, 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 you're working harder, but your sense of satisfaction is falling as you're mm -hmm. doing that. Um, that definitely was happening. That was part of the slippery slope. The other one was really around reactivity, you know, just becoming really reactive, irritable, frustrated, angry, blamey. Um, you know, no one could do anything right. <laughs> First and foremost, myself, of course, but therefore no one else as well. Um, and I didn't realize that I had gotten stuck in a terrible loop of um, lack and scarcity. You know, whenever anything came up, like maybe I could see my friend or take a massage or go to that yoga class, you know, there was this uh, broken record that went, I don't have the time, the energy or the money. And I would choose one of those, or maybe all three, if I'm like gonna go for a full house, right? And, and it was only in hindsight that I realized, wow, I've, I've disempowered myself to such a state, I've entered into that victim state and just to such an extent that I've somehow believe I don't have the ability somehow to do these things, even though I needed them. So I think in hindsight, these were some of the, um, warning bells um but then eventually you know the whispers become screams don't they and you and and, and it becomes like brain fog mm -hmm. you know you just can't think properly you know you're just sitting there kind of going wow I used to be quite an intelligent person and now I feel like Homer Simpson just like oh <laughs> <laughs> two brain cells together like what's happening you know sorry Homer Simpson but um um, and actually, for me, it was a very um, stark experience of having an out of body experience while doing a BBC interview. Mm -hmm. um, it was the 10 year anniversary. Um, we had just released a second BBC documentary and I was doing a, a BBC interview and I just had this out of body experience. I, and I was just looking at myself and I was like, what the F? Like, how am I still doing this? Why am I still talking about hospitals being bombed? Why am I still talking about children being killed? Mm. It's been 10 years and just the world collapsed around me. Mm -hmm. I felt like the world's greatest failure. I, I just knew I couldn't go on anymore. I, it, my, the, my work lost all sense of purpose. I mm -hmm. lost any sense of faith in myself, in my ability. And, um, and, 
and and finally I think it was like a lid came off and suddenly all these emotions were coming out mm -hmm. from you know days when I would just sob to days when I would just be furious and angry and I just had to do what I hadn't done before and just feel mm. like I just knew it was time to allow like, like all those years of like shut up and get on with your work shut up and get on with it you know all that year of bottling and of acting through it had gone like there was a very much a point of no return you are having to deal with this now here we go strap yourself in you're in for a ride so let me go back and ask a question that maybe listeners would have which is you know when you were on that slippery slope and you could feel like uh increased workload decreased purpose and um, you were telling yourself what I would call a false narrative, right? I can't do this. I don't have time. I don't have resources, money, energy. Um, you know, nobody else is taking breaks around here. So I might as well just, you know, continue to, to soldier forward. Um, what are looking back now, if, if you're speaking to a colleague and they're like that, that's me, that's exactly what I'm feeling right now. That what would you encourage him or her to, to, to pause and do? What I really wish I had known that no one had told me and very few people still talk about is that that overly critical voice, especially the voice that tells you to shut up and get on with your work, you know, that nasty voice that we all know, you know, it's not your sister who is raped, it's not your mother who is skilled now, shut up and get back to work. That voice of shame is the voice of trauma. That is your wound speaking. It is not you speaking. That is the biggest alarm bell that you have trauma, that you need to do the healing that you need to do. And that healing begins first and foremost by bringing self-compassion. The thing that most of us are missing at that extent of burnout and trauma. We become such extremely self-critical people because we believe we're a failure, because of everything that the trauma, that false narrative you're talking about is actually a trauma narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And we believe it. And what I want listeners to now realize is that actually this is the flag to say you have some urgent healing to do. Oh my gosh, I appreciate that so much. Um, urgent healing that needs to happen. And I think a lot of, especially physicians who are in the space of helping and healing, think about trauma and they think, not me. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I heal trauma. I, I, I help people through painful experiences. Um, I, I put my stuff aside. And what you're saying is when all of that narrative comes up, when all of that criticism coming up, it's your body's cry for help. 100%. I, I would go so far as say that actually most of us, even health workers, um, don't really know what trauma is. I mean, that person you described like that, you know, that's not me. That was me. Mm -hmm. You know, that was me. I literally actually used to say, it's amazing how untraumatized I am considering how much I've been through. Like, I really believe that mm -hmm. such was the insidious nature of it. And also such was the fact that, you know, this is our job right? Our job is to witness people's suffering. Our job is to deal with, you know, 
the 10 year old who dies from heart anaphylaxis and the 20 year old who dies at the end of your syringe and and you know all of these things which to the general public would be unfathomable that's your job and so you don't think of them as in any way wounding right but um I used to think that trauma was essentially PTSD, right? Unless you're having flashbacks and nightmares and you're utterly incapacitated, then you're right. not traumatized. Right. Mm -hmm. But what we now know trauma is, isn't really the event itself, right? But it's what happens inside of your body because of it. And it is your nervous system dysregulation, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? It is that stuck in survival mode, your you know, I, 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 the way I describe it to, to, my, to my clients is like, you're shipwrecked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're shipwrecked. You're out of sea. You're in survival mode. You're treading water trying not to drown. That is survival mode. And that's what happens when we have a chronic, unrelenting, you know, trauma that we witness. And that's the dysregulation that we get into. And um, we... You know, one of the things that we didn't talk about as flags, which I, you know, I now know in hindsight was my back pain. Mm, your body. You. Yeah, because, you know, so most of us associate trauma with as a mental health thing, which is part of the stigma of it. And it's part of the misunderstanding of it. But actually, it is like... <laughs> an old system thing I think it strikes you at the emotional level at the mental level at the cognitive level at the spiritual level and certainly at the physical level and I had no idea that the chronic back pain I had developed over the last three years was related to this and and get this even when it was suggested to me by someone I really like I like dismissed it I was like what are you talking about like no I need to get an x-ray maybe an MRI you know I was just so like classic I don't know what to call myself about it but you know because I don't want to insult any listeners because they might, might they might think the same but we don't we don't think that the body keeps the score we don't think and believe that we hold our emotions in our bodies but we do we do because here's the thing after a year of my healing and after crying a river my back pain is gone mm -mm. You know, what you're saying is music to my ears, and it's why I created this podcast, The Most Important Medicine, um, how we respond to trauma in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And when you said a moment ago, you know, most healthcare providers don't know what trauma is, they think about maybe traditional forms of trauma. And I would go so far as to say, actually, when I approach a lot of healthcare organizations to talk about trauma-informed medicine or being trauma-responsive, they're like, oh, you mean like motor vehicle accidents or, you know, traumatic brain injuries. And I'm like, no, no, not physical traumas, which are also traumatic. Right. I'm talking about how our body internalizes trauma and what that might look like in you, in your patients, in their family members, whether it be individual traumas or historical mm. or systemic traumas. And so mm. I really appreciate you pointing that out. Mm. Um, and so it sounds like you got to a point where through some dissociation, lack of purpose, and just, you know, you were going, 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 that you got to a space of really significant burnout. And um, what I didn't read at the beginning, I was saving for, for this part of our discussion is in Dr. Rola's bio, she said, you know, after I recovered from burnout and trauma, I emerged a warrior embodying the power of Rumi's poetry, quote, yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. 
Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. Mm. And I think about you saying, you know, here I was at the 10 year anniversary doing another BBC documentary. You were changing the world. You were telling the story of the people of your country. And all of a sudden your body said, no, you have to now Mm. take care of me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think up until that point, I thought it was selfish to prioritize myself. It was a luxury to prioritize myself. Um, And actually it took getting pregnant with my daughter um, to finally realize that, oh, wow, wait, if I want to nurture and nourish this other important, you know, um, thing in my life, I have to nurture and nourish myself. Right. And yeah. and it really was just such a like moment of like suddenly realizing, wait, the way in which I can be of greater service, the way that I can create impact, the way that um, um, I can show my care and my compassion is to prioritize myself to make sure that I am of the healthiest mind, body and soul that I could possibly be. Mm-hmm. And so that paradigm shift, and it really is a paradigm shift, is around realizing that we cannot heal the world if we are deeply wounded. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We cannot bring peace on earth if we have a war raging within. We cannot bring down systems of prejudice and oppression if we despise ourselves. All of that work begins inside. It is the inner work of medicine. It is the inner work of activism and advocacy. It is the inner work of changing the world. It starts by changing ourselves. And here's the good news. We actually can change ourselves. It's very bloody difficult to change the world, you know? So this is really good news all around, you know? But but it really is a paradigm shift Mm -hmm. to realize that it is wise to do so Mm -hmm. it is in fact what we must do you use the word change maker Mm. and I love that term and I use that term and I think that people who understand trauma and shift that into self-care self-compassion advocacy um, after healing as you said themselves we really have the ability to be change makers. Mm. Um, how would you define what a change maker is? Well, that's interesting because what the biggest shift for me personally has been around the shift from savior mm. to thinking of myself more of a healing presence. Mm. Wow, I love that. And it's really this shift of responsibility a flattening of hierarchy. And it is intimately related to the development of compassion and facing your own darkness. So when you think of yourself as a savior, when I thought of myself as a savior, right? That means I am strong and therefore there is someone who is weak, mm-hmm. who I was going to save, to help, to fix because they are broken. 
and it burdened me. It burdened me until I got depleted, drained, exhausted, overwhelmed, and I could no longer go on. It was a giving, giving, giving without any receiving. The paradigm shift, this is the back to this shifting from clever to wise, was that I don't need to save you. You can save yourself. You are not broken. You don't need to be fixed. You have untold innate intelligence. There is the divine being as well there. And my role is to be a healing presence, a healing invitation. My role is just to be a North Star during your dark night of the soul so that I can help to guide you towards back back to your wholeness. But you will be doing that healing. You will be doing your work. I am merely an invitation. Mm. You can take it. And I'd be honored if you do. And I will hold a space with the utmost love and compassion for you to just like get rid of all the stuff that you're holding and help you to metabolize that trauma. But I don't need to fix you anymore. And therefore, you cannot overwhelm me. Yes. You cannot burden me. And I don't need to defend myself against you. I don't need to put barriers up. Right? Right. When I've seen my own darkness and felt my own pain, I will no longer judge you for yours. You can come and sit. I've got clients who literally just show up, cry for for like 45 minutes, and thank me and leave. I'm like, Mm -hmm. you're very welcome. (laughs) Come again, right? Because they're just not used to being able to do that without someone trying to either make them laugh, distract them, fix them, you know, choose any, any one thing. And I'm like, come just be, be I love I love how you phrased it as an invitation right an invitation to be with versus saving someone and I think we don't do any we don't do a service to healthcare providers to call them healthcare heroes um, because it puts them in that role of savior and Mm. I I think what you're saying is to be a change maker means dismantling that and saying, let me walk you, walk with you on this path. I will be present. I will be compassionate. I will be unafraid of mm. what, what has hurt you or harmed you. And I won't back down from it because your pain and my, I see you in me mm. and you can heal. You have these internal reserves to heal. And I, I 100% believe that Rola. I really mm. do. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I used to, back to this issue of, you know, change maker, I think so many of us just learn to force, you know, like I was, I was so good at making stuff happen, right? Like the doer, you know, my organization is called Can Do, because it was just like, do, 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 right? And so when you, I think, this is again that shift from from clever to wise when we're in that clever phase we are making stuff happen and that often ends up being feeling like you're in a battle forcing and pushing and shoving pulling the grass up to make it taller um and what i think we can be is catalysts change is happening anyway whether we like it or not could be in the wrong direction, could be in the right direction. But I think that presence, you know, that healing presence, that that change, changing presence, that you can act as a catalyst. You can speed something up 
right? Without it trans changing you necessarily, right? Like in that overwhelming way. Although I'm yeah. pretty sure you'll always be altered and transformed by an experience. But I think that's what we can be is, is catalysts for other people's healing or for whatever it is that we are doing in, um, in the world. I really want our listeners to hear this message, Rola, because I think so often physicians and other providers back away from people's trauma or their story or what's hurting them because they're worried, like, I'm not a therapist. I don't know what to do. I can't fix this. And I want you mm. all to hear Rola's message that there's no fixing. There's just mm. being with mm. being present. Um, I could talk to you all day about this. Um, tell, tell me what you've learned um, becoming an international speaker when you're talking to audiences all over. Um, mm. What are you learning about your story and trauma and, and how your story of resilience is impacting folks? Good question. I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to tell you a little story. So I was um, invited to speak at um, a VIP Google event. And on the way to it, I had A, not sorted out my talk and B, I really didn't want to go. I was feeling really low. I was like, I'm fed up of being wheeled on stage as the girl who talks about the burnt children, the girl who talks about her country going to shit. Like I was just really in a low place. I was like, you know, I felt like a kid having a tantrum. I don't want to go, you know. And um, and what I had learned and what I did do was realize and learn that actually the audience wants your most authentic you. And that means you connected to your story. And the audience can feel when you are talking from heart and even with touching your pain, they can tell that they can feel it when you haven't become so defended that you're telling, you know, a deeply meaningful story, like you're just talking about your cereal, right? Because that can happen sometimes. And so so, you know, I knew that I had to do that work of, of the, the night before of like connecting with my purpose. Why am I here? Why am I, why am I getting on stage? Why am I, why is it so important for me to tell these stories, you know? And so I, I get up on stage and, and I speak with as much heart and presence and authenticity. And as always, I expect very little from any of these talks. You never know how it's going to go. And I was blown away that one by one by one, they started to donate to keep one of our hospitals that was literally two days away from shutting down. And I raised a million dollars from this talk that I didn't want to give. And it was really that daring to just stand up, even in my pain, even when I didn't want to connect to the purpose and be real. You know, I didn't, I wasn't putting on a performance. I wasn't trying to be some show woman, right? I was, I was just being real, speaking to real people <laughs> without an expectation. Um, and, and you know what? People care. Absolutely. And people are good. And people want to help. Mm -hmm. Of course, not everyone, but people are good. And this is really important to, to remember. And people are often you know, shocked that even though I've worked in a war zone and even though I've seen the worst of humanity, you know, I've also seen its very best. And I remain extremely optimistic and hopeful about, you know, humans because 
I have seen not only those who are risking their lives every day to save others um, and being those beacons of light in the darkness of war, but I've witnessed people around the world, strangers helping strangers. Yeah, I really believe we heal through stories. Hmm. And and it sounds like what, that's one of your big lessons from all of your travels and storytelling is, is just sharing your authentic story. Mm. Um, yes. Okay. Well, let me, let me move us into a little bit of wrap up rapid fire. I, okay. I kind of have a couple that I am doing spur of the moment because of some of the information you're sharing, but okay. um, tell me if people wanted right now to donate to the humanitarian efforts that are happening in Syria and Turkey, where would you point them towards? Okay, so um, I would point them towards Hand in Hand for Aid and Development. Uh, it's one of Kandu's um, trusted and vetted partners. They are brilliant. I know them um, inside out from a volunteer to having been their medical director before, and now they're partners of Kandu. They are there on the ground. Um, as survivors themselves, but, um, you know, and, and um, they know exactly where the needs are and, and how to get them in the most efficient and cost effective way. So I would highly recommend funding, donating them. Perfect. I'm going to link up to that in the show notes for our sure. listeners. Um, if you could go back um, before the pregnancy, before the deep burnout, uh, before even entering into that state of overwhelm and talk to Rola at that time, what would you tell her? I would say that you are not your work. You, this is not your identity. It is not who you are. It is what you do. It is your purpose. It is your mission, but it's not who you are. You are the spirit, the soul, the light, the energy that is behind that. And therefore do not get sucked in to this achievement-driven world. Mm -hmm. You are worthy and valuable in and of yourself, not because you're getting awards and not because anybody else tells you to, but because you are in and of yourself. Thank you. That's incredible. Um, two last questions. Okay. I think often in healthcare, um, uh, people get intimidated by professionals and, and physicians. Um, what's one thing that makes you a messy human, Rola? What's one thing that makes you perfectly imperfect? Oh my God, so many! <laughs> I mean, I'm constantly talking about my my burnout and um, and, and and all my all my issues. So I've definitely um, made it made it very plainly obvious that um, that I that I can be uh, not good. But um, what is it that makes me completely imperfect? Well, you know what I you know I still I still try and force and shove things now. You know, even though I'm you know I'm more surrendered than ever, and I'm more trusting than ever, and I'm more like relaxed than ever. There is still that like there's still that neuronal pathway that goes harder faster go yes. and then you know yes. and I have to like hold myself back and go no 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 remember that lesson no we learned that one we don't need to do that anymore it's about smarter not harder and so um yeah and and I think the messiest part of that is that I can do that to others around me that's what's not nice it's one oh. thing to drive yourself it's other to then start driving people around you um and that's when that's when I can aggravate people oh gosh I 
I can relate to that. <laughs> we can get kind of pushy and judgy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not enough. Not good enough. You know, <laughs> and it's just like, come off that not good enough horse. It's boring. Yeah. We've we've heard yeah. it for years now. We're sorting this one out. And, and I just, as soon as you said that, and I was like, oh my gosh, Rola and I are like peas in a pod. I thought, oh, that's our that's our trauma narrative, right? That's that message of this is pain behind that pushing someone else too. So just a, a, as a quick reminder. Okay. Last question here. Um, it's 11 o'clock at night and you have a food craving. What do you reach for? <laughs> I've had a lot of these recently. I don't know what's going on, but um, <laughs> I love Lint's dark chocolate with salt. Have you ever oh. had it? Oh yes, my I God, it was such a dangerous discovery. It's so, <laughs> so devastatingly good. Um, but luckily, I'm very good at taking just one square at a time. That's I'm definitely a delayed gratification girl. <laughs> I, that's what I, was thing say, is, yeah. I was like, why do they make them in little squares when they know we just want to eat the whole thing? <laughs> yeah, my so- husband wants to eat the whole thing. And I'm like, you've had two squares. He's like, are you judging me? I'm like... Mm-hmm. Kind of, you're sorry. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming on on the most important medicine. We'll link up to everything in the show notes, including um, Dr. Rola does a lot of coaching, and we're going to link up to that in the show notes um, in her program, I Thrive, which I think people would just love. Um, you know, we had to be very persistent for the listeners that are here to get this time together because of our time zone differences. And I have to say, you are amazing and you are a delight and a change maker. And I so appreciate the light that you bring into the world and the work that you're doing. So thank you for being here. Mm, thank you so, so much. I've loved our conversation. And um, I really hope that my my words can can be healing to anyone who who listens and if you need my help and support I would be honored to join you please get in touch um, on my website at drrellacoaching.com I'd be honored to join you awesome we will make those resources available to everybody in the show Mm -hmm. notes and on my website thank you so much we'll talk soon thank you bye Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing your own, because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.